comfort. Amen. It's good to be in the Lord's house in 2011. How many people are glad that 2011 is here? Ah, how many people are glad that 2010 is over? Ah, <laughs> the Lord is good. The Lord is good. Um, we're going to jump into this word in just one second. I just want to also say um, something that will be going on the um, website, if it's not there already, will be a Bible reading plan for 2011. So that may be on there right now. If not, it'll be there in the next couple days. I'm going to tell you where it starts. Start at Genesis 1, Psalm 1, and Luke chapter 5. That's where that particular plan starts. Um, and so if you start reading one chapter a day from there, you'll be good for right now. That should be on the website very soon. I would hope and pray that uh, some of us could really make a commitment to reading the Bible more this year. And even if, if, if we have a plan that we're kind of doing together, then that's something that's really significant. It helps us even in our times of fellowship because we can kind of see what other people are seeing. What are you getting out of this scripture? What the Lord is speaking through his word and rightly dividing his word. So that's something that will be on the website, if not right now, very, very soon. Um, let's jump into his word. Um, First John chapter 2. just want to read the last couple verses of chapter 2 and then the first few verses of chapter 3. Not the gospel of John, but the epistle 1 John. Starting at chapter 2 and verse 28. And now little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him, purifies himself as he is pure. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit. We would ask that in, in the coming few moments that you would work by your word and by your spirit to glorify your name. Lord, help us to uh, drown out the things that call for our attention, even when we can look attentive, our minds are going all over the place. We ask even now, Lord God, that you would help us to focus by your spirit and Lord, feed us that we might glorify you. We pray it in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. 
New Year's is a time when a lot of people make New Year's resolutions. I'm not going to ask you if you made New Year's resolutions because some Christians are funny about that kind of thing. I was talking to one young lady in the congregation. I won't mention Saint-Mané by name, but, um, oh, shucks, I just did. Um, she said I could. Uh, but, but we were talking about this, and she says, I don't believe in resolutions. I believe in prayer. I said, glory to God. I had to step back. I was in the presence of a holy woman of God. But, but, but whether we make New Year's resolutions or not, we all make different types of resolutions in, in life. We, we want to do better. We want to improve some aspect or quality of our life. And as believers, that's a, a natural and a real thing. We want to be more like Jesus. And so we look at various areas where we're struggling and say, I want to do better here. Um, <clears throat> that's, that's a resolution. I looked up the word resolution, had two uh, different meanings, but a lot of meanings, but two of them that stuck out. Number one, a resolution is the mental state or quality of being resolved or resolute. It's firmness of purpose. That's a resolution, being resolute. Another definition is very different. This is more about your television. It says the degree of sharpness of a computer-generated image as measured by the number of dots per linear inch in a hard copy printout or the number of pixels across and down on a display screen. So resolution, or we could call it high definition, yes? Somebody has looked at a HDTV. I'm going to talk to you this morning about high-resolution believers. Or we could say high-definition believers. Um, I have a TV where I have some channels that it's, it's the same program, but there's a non-HD version of it, and there's an HD version of it. How many people have, have that on there? I'm not the only one. Oh, just a few of you. Okay. I can turn on a, a ball game and watch these, these dudes, and sometimes it's hard to tell who's on what team because it's kind of fuzzy. It's kind of hard to see, but then I flip it over to the HD channel, and it's clear, and, it, and it's precise, and it's like, pow, there it is. I feel like I'm right there at the game. I can see it. Now, I remember when I was growing up, um, we got a large screen, 13-inch black and white TV, and we thought that was something back in the day. But now you got like 60-inch HD Bose surround sound it's like you're right there. But you can see it crisp and clear. They say that uh, HD television has roughly 1 to 2 million pixels per frame. Now, I don't know what a pixel is or a frame is, but I just thought I'd say that. But that's roughly five times the amount that standard definition television has. So in other words, it's much, much, much clearer. You can see it. It jumps out at you. As John is writing to uh, believers, and he's probably writing from Ephesus, um, he's writing not to one particular church, but to believers in some different churches. Um, <clears throat> he, he's looking at the clarity of people's lives. 
Um, and I wonder as, as we start out, as we get into this, could just ask the question, um, is your Christian living, is your life a high definition life? Or is it standard definition where it's fuzzy? And someone would look at you and, and look at your walk and they'd have to look real close maybe to determine is he or isn't he? What, what is she exactly? I can't, I can't make it out. God's desire is that our lives would be high resolution, high definition. We'd be high definition believers. We would pop out as those who love Jesus Christ, as those who have been purchased by his blood, as those who unmistakably show the imprint of the family resemblance on every area of our lives. That's God's calling for us. So as we look through these scriptures, I'm going to have three points. I'll tell you the points right now. Uh, the first one is this. High resolution believers live with these three things. High resolution believers live with, number one, a longing to be with Jesus. Number two, high resolution believers live with a realized sonship. I'll tell you what that means in a, in a, little, in a little while. And thirdly, high resolution believers live with an astounding expectation. And that's from these verses. So let's, good God Almighty, somebody's happy already. That's okay. Get happy. It's God's word. So let's look at these verses. Let's dig in here. Verse 28, John, and, the, and we're picking it up in the middle of this epistle. So we're going to look at some different things here. But he, he's writing here and he says, and now little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. John's an old man. He's either gray-haired or no-haired by now. He's probably in his 80s, perhaps even in his 90s when he's writing this. And he's writing it, you can see, with fatherly affection. 20 times in this short letter, he refers to his readers as little children or children. Fatherly affection, pastorly affection. He cares for them. And so he writes, little children. A number of times, at least six times in, in this letter, he refers to his readers as beloved. So you see this affection in this love. And he says, little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame and his coming. You see, even as an old man who's lived out his Christian life, he hung out with Jesus for three years. John was the one that was called the beloved disciple. He's the one who laid his head on Jesus at the Last Supper. He was an intimate of Jesus as much as perhaps more than any other human being while Jesus was on earth. And he's planted churches. He's been used by God. He's been through persecutions. He's about probably to go into persecution and to be put on an island far away in isolation, Patmos, where God gives him the revelation. 
But he's gone through all this. He's done his work. It seems like he could say, like, Paul, I've finished my course. I'm 80 years old. I'm 90 years old. I'm an old man. I'm done. But he doesn't say that at all. He says, I can't wait for his coming. I long to be with Jesus. Abide in him, he says, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back. I want to be with Jesus. He's old, he's lived his life, but he's still longing to be with Jesus. Now, he writes this letter in response to some things that are going on uh, in the churches that he's writing to. And there are some heretical ideas that are being spread that he, through this epistle, is directly confronting. I want you to see something here quickly. If you have your Bibles open to 1 John, I'm just going to go through a few things here quickly. What he has to say in response to those who are spreading this false doctrine. He calls them in chapter 2, in verse 19, he says, they are those who went out from us. In chapter 2, verse 22, and also in chapter 5, verse 10, he calls them liars. In chapter 2, verse 26, he calls them deceivers. In chapter 3, verse 8, he calls them children of the devil. In chapter 4, verse 1, he calls them false prophets. In chapter 4, verse 5, he says they are from the world. And in chapter 5, verse 12, he said they are those who do not have life. And there in several places in this epistle, chapter 2, verse 18, and chapter 4, verse 2, being two of those instances, he actually refers to them as antichrists. As much as he calls believers, the little ones, little children, children, he talks of the believers as beloved. He comes at those who would upset their faith, at those who would come in and talk about Christ and talk about the faith in a way that would disturb them in the harshest terms imaginable. They are antichrist. They are liars. They are deceivers. They're false prophets. They went out from us, he says, because they were never really of us. He comes with harsh words, this old man who so tenderly loves God's people. But there's this harshness because he is protecting the flock of God. He loves them dearly. And so let me just develop this a little bit more. What is this heresy that he's combating? It's really threefold. First of all, it's and really all of them are doctrinal, but the first part I'll call doctrinal. It's a denial of the person and work of Christ as the God man. In chapter four and verse two, he puts it this way. By this, you know, the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. They were spreading a heresy that Jesus was not the God-man. If he was God, he wasn't fully man. 
They were spreading the heresy that his body wasn't a real body like yours and mine. That it was, it was quantitatively and qualitatively different from ours. So he didn't fully enter into humanity because the view of materialism and humanity was that it was inherently evil and bad. That's not a Christian worldview at all. And so they, they, they spread this doctrine. And let me just say this, almost every heretical doctrine, no matter where it ends up, it starts with a misconception about the person of Jesus Christ. And from there, you go all kind of crazy places. But they're denying the reality of his flesh. That's why John, at the very beginning of this letter, says that which was from the beginning, verse 1, chapter 1, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We've seen it. We testified and proclaimed to you of the eternal life. He says, I've seen him. I've been with him. I, I, I've, I've touched him. I've watched him. I've been with this Jesus. He's real. And these teachers are saying, nah, not real. More like a phantom spiritual kind of thing because, because flesh in and of itself, material, is not good. And so by doing this, they, they deny his authentic humanity and they thrust a demonic wedge between material and immaterial reality. So it's that which is spiritual that really matters, and the physical or material doesn't really matter. That's what they're teaching. And this sets up the next part of the heresy. The next part is ethical. That is, they deny that they sin. Chapter 1, verse 8. He says, if we say we have no sin, he's speaking directly to those who are spreading this lie. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Say so we have to confess our sins. We've got to deal with our sin. But their heresy said that, look, because Jesus was this ethereal, spiritual kind of thing and because God is not interested in this body of flesh that therefore what I do doesn't really make a difference. I can deny my own sin. You know, people will cut you up and down, curse you out, and then go to God and say, but God knows my heart. I'm scared of that. But he knows my heart. As if to say he knows I'm right with God. Not, no, you're not. No, you're not. You're a mess. So they deny their own sin because they believe that nothing they do in the flesh has any real consequence. They spiritualize things in such a way that they deny the importance of their actual behavior. They minimize sin, and therefore, verse, chapter 3, verse 9, and in other places, talks about them practicing sin. So they practice sin. Michael Jordan was born on my birthday, not the other way around. I was born in 1962. He was born in 1963. We both play basketball. 
The rumor is he's a little better than me. But we've never had a chance to settle that on the court, so it's not known for sure. But, but when I played basketball, I remember, especially as a teenager, wanting to play on my high school team and, and trying to get better. I would practice. And sometimes I would go and I would just practice one thing over and over and over again. I would practice free throws for hours. Still never got very good at them, though. Or I would practice a certain move or a certain you know, way of dribbling or, or trying to cross somebody over without falling over myself. Um, but because it was something I wanted to get better at, I wanted to get skilled at, had a goal, I wanted to make the team. I practiced at it. I worked at it. And John says of these who are spreading this false, teach, false teaching, they practice sin. We all fall. We all sin. They deny that they sinned at all. We as believers know that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. If we'll admit to it, if we'll repent of it, and we are constantly coming to God because we're bombarded with the fact that this righteous God is good and perfect and holy and we are not. And the, 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 the clearer a, a, a revelation of him that we get as we read the scriptures and walk with God, the more we know just how tainted and jacked up we are. So we see that and we... And the lifestyle of the believer is one of repentance and confession and walking again with God and looking to him for strength. But here they believe they have nothing to repent of because they are without sin. So that is the ethical dimension of this heresy. And, and, and lastly, there's a communal dimension of it. Look at chapter 4 and verse 19. They minimize Christ's call to genuine love for the family of God. Chapter 4, verse 19 says, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he, can, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So he's combating this immaterial way of looking at Jesus that begins to affect everything about how we live in this world. And so John, the old man, the sage, is looking and longing for the coming of Jesus Christ. I wonder sometimes, what is it that we long for? What is it that we can't wait to have. What is it that we need to complete us? There's just one more. If I get this, ah, if I can just go there. Ah, but this old man who's lived this thing for 80, 90 years longs to be with Jesus. Longs to be with him. I remember for, for Christmas, I'm a grandfather now, and I'm finding that grandfathering is different than fathering. Sorry, children. Two of my children are over here. 
But, but in grandfather, my wife and I said, okay, we've finished buying presents for Mariah. We're done. We're finished. We're not buying anymore. I said, absolutely, I'm good with that. No problem. I just have to go out and get a couple other presents for a couple other people, and I'll be done. And I saw a pink laptop. VTech. Beautiful plastic. With a little plastic mouse, and it looks so cute. And I said... Mariah has to have this. I must get this. And thus I did purchase. A couple days later, I was watching her. You know, she got other Christmas presents and things. And um, I was watching her, and she was sitting in a box. There, there had been a present in the box. The present was nowhere to be found. She was in the box. She was chilling and relaxing in the box. And there was another box next to her. And I don't know if she thought she was on a plane, on a train, in an automobile or something. But she was just loving being in the box. And my beautiful pink VTech laptop computer is sitting there over somewhere. And she doesn't care about that at all. She just wants to be in the box. You know, I wonder often for us. As believers, we get so fixated on the wrong thing, the thing that doesn't do anything for us at all. And yet God has something for us. It may seem so simple. It's just it's a box. It's not a laptop that this little person does things and I can learn numbers and colors and all that stuff on. It's not cool. It's just a box. He's just a savior. He's just the God man who came and died for your sin. He gave his life for you. He, he raised up on the third day. That's, that's all. It's just this old gospel story. That's all it is. Ah, but that's everything. And the apostle longs. He longs to see Jesus again. A longing to see Jesus. And with that longing, just look at verse 29 real quick. When he longs to see Jesus, he said, and everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Ah, I long to see Jesus. And because of that, I want to practice not sin. I know I sin, but I'm not practicing it to see how good at it I can get. I want to practice righteousness. I'm going to work at that. I'm going to work at that every day. And if I miss the mark time after time after time after time, I'm going to keep on practicing. And I'm not going to give up. So, the first thing is a longing to see Jesus. The second thing is a realized sonship. And it comes right from that verse. But let me look a little bit first at, verse, at chapter 3, verse 1. Look what he says. He says, see now what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. We're going to talk about deacons next week. Deacon's a great title, and deacon is also something that the local church needs. And the reality is we have people here who are functioning as deacons already by the grace of God. But they'll one day they'll have a title. Um, there are different titles and different things that are helpful in the church or even in a corporation or in other places. But the, 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 the title that makes all the difference is child of God. And he is blown away by the fact that we could be called children of God. He says, see what kind of love. 
the Father's given us. That, that expression, what kind, what kind of love, it was an expression in the Greek that had meant in the past of what country. It's an expression that came to, to mean, and some translations put it, what manner of love. It speaks about the quality of the thing. So how great is this love? How free is this love? How precious is this love? He sees this love and it's of a different kind. It's of a different quality. It's of a different type than anything that can be known in this world. It's wholly other than what we can know here. And he's blown away by it. He's saying in essence, where in the world did this kind of love come from? I have no no, no, no way of understanding or comprehending the fact that the holy, righteous, eternal, perfect, triune, omnipotent God would call me his boy, his son, his daughter, my God. There's a realized sonship here, and he's blown away by it. Um, my wife was here in the first service, and We've been married for 25 years, and I love my wife, and she admitted in the first service that I'm actually getting a little bit better. I don't know how much, but a little bit better. But I love her dearly. But the fact is I know that as much as I love her, I still fail her. I hurt her at times. I disappoint her. I let her down with greater frequency than I would want to admit to. Because my flesh is immensely imperfect in its ability to love selflessly on a consistent basis. But this kind of love, this father agape, is quantitatively and qualitatively different than anything else in this world. It is a different kind of love. It's a kind of love that the holy God would love such unholy as I. And call me his boy, his child. You know, if we're going to walk as high resolution or high de definition believers, we have to have a realized sonship. We have got to know who we are in Christ in an unshakable way. I am his son. I belong to him. I am his child because he has willed it so. Because he has died for me. Because he has come for me. And captured me and plucked me out of hell's clutches and the devil's clutches. He came for me and I know who I am in him. It's so important. At the end of verse 29 where he says everyone that practices righteousness has been born of him. <clears throat> that last phrase born of him. And also in chapter 3, verse 9, and chapter 5, verse 1, that same type of phrase is used. It could actually be translated fathered by him. When we, often when we talk about being born, um, sister, our, our, little, our newest member, Hannah, of the Burke family, was born yesterday at 311, and she was born by Ruth. But she was fathered by Niren. And I'll bet when you're around him, he's going to let you know. That's my girl. I did that. <laughs> F 
fathered by Nairon. We are fathered by God. Born of God. Fathered of God. He wants us to know that. That needs to be settled in our heart. This idea that I am a son and I can't be snatched away by anything and anyone else. I'm a son. John Eldridge has a book called Fathered by God. Um, the premise of his book is that become, and it's particularly for men, but we can generalize some of the things here, but the process of becoming a man, particularly a Christian man, is, is a process that goes through different stages. And he looks at the stages, and the first stage is the stage of boyhood or what he would call the beloved son, being the beloved son. The second stage he calls the cowboy stage. You know, a, a young man perhaps uh, in, in adolescence just uh, trying to figure out the world, figure things out, and, and doing what they do in that cowboy stage. The warrior stage is next, and that's a stage where he talks about as a young man, you begin to go out into the world and make your mark in the world. So perhaps that's through a career that is through what you give your life to, the warrior stage. Then there's the lover stage where you find the, the one of your dreams, that woman that you're going to give your strength to. Uh, this is a side note, not really part of this sermon in some ways, but we often, he talks about the fact that often we put the lover stage <laughs> right at the boyhood stage or the cowboy stage. And so we're going to the woman for what we can get from her, not what we can give to her. To give her strength, to give her protection, to give her love. So we mess those stages up. But then there's the, the king stage as, a, as an older man who may be a manager, or may have their business, or may have responsibility over many others. And then uh, later on in life, the, the stage of being a sage, an elder who who knows and is able to help younger men. But he says this, great damage is done if we ask a boy to become a king too soon. As is the case when a father abandons his family, walking out the door with the parting words, you're the man of the house now. When we ask this of the boy, it is a wound equal to a curse, for in a moment he's robbed of his boyhood and asked to leap over stages of masculine maturity no man can leap over. No, there's a way, there's a path that must be taken, not a formula, a way. Each stage has its lessons to be learned. Each stage can be wounded, cut short, leaving the growing man with an undeveloped soul. We wonder why he folds suddenly when he's 45, like a tree we find toppled in the yard after a night of strong winds. We go over and have a look and find that its roots hadn't sunk down deep into the earth, or perhaps that it was rotten on the inside, weakened by disease or drought. Such are the insides of an unfinished man. Many of us are unfinished men, unfinished women as well. Reality is if 
we can only go back and look at an earthly man to fulfill that need, we will be let down. If you're looking for a spouse to be the one who's going to give you what you need, the strength that you need, you will be let down. If you're looking for anyone but this Father God to be that one, you'll be let down. But when we realize that we are his children, that he is our father, and however many ways we may have been let down in the fathering that we received in this world, this father will never leave you down. He will never mess you up. If you're a father yourself, you know that you've had times where you've messed up with your children. I can look back on things and, ah, I wish I did this better. I wish I did that better. But I, I don't want to just stay in that place because that's not helpful. But to ask God how to help me to do it better now, how to do it better the next time. But the reality is we need to realize that we are his sons. We are his children and in that, we draw incredible strength. We're born of him, born of God. Last point, not only are we longing to see Jesus, not only do we have a realized sonship, but also we have an astounding expectation. An astounding expectation. Verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. Incredible. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. When he appears, we shall be like him. Right now, I am not that much like him. I am more like him than I was. He is molding me and shaping me in the image of Jesus Christ. That is God's agenda for your life in 2011. And if you live to 2012, his agenda doesn't change. But this process that we're going through of sanctification, there will be a quantum leap in what that looks like when Jesus comes again. Because the Bible says not will kind of sort of be a little bit maybe sort of like him, but it says we will be like him when he appears. What an expectation the apostle lays out. It's astounding. I'm going to be like Jesus. How am I going to be like Jesus? I'm not going to be the son of God. No, I'm not going to be the son of God. But everything in me, as much as the spirit and the flesh are struggling now, and I want to do uh, God's will and overcome my flesh and the world and the devil, and often I do that. But in that day, there will be nothing to struggle against. Because I'll be like him and there will be no impurity in my soul whatsoever. So not only does he wipe away every tear, not only do I have a body that can outjump Michael Jordan, not only am I able to, to, to not grow old and not grow weary and all of those things, but there is perfection in my makeup. I'll be like him. 
My God, what an expectation for the believer. He lays that out. We will be like him. Mm. Right now, we live every day because if, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God lives in you. So theologians would say, you have the possibility to sin, but also the possibility not to sin. In any given situation, by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, by his word, we can overcome sin. But in reality, we know that at some level, in thought, in motive, in purpose, in something, we're tainted in whatever we do in this world. So that cycle of repentance and confession and crying out to God. But my God, in that day, that won't be the cycle anymore because there'll be nothing in us that's tainted and we'll just glorify God. We'll do what he gives us to do and we will we will love him and please him in every respect at all times and in every way in a perfect community. We shall be like him because we see him as he is. Do you live with that expectation as a believer? I mean, really, think about it. Are you living with that expectation? He's coming. And one day I'm going to see him. Uh, I, I don't want to be ashamed at his coming. I'm, are you longing to see him? Do you know that you're a child of God? And do you have an expectation that one day you'll be like him? I remember when, well, when I got married to my wife. I do remember that, long ago as it was. But we made a wedding video, and in the video, they had a, a long scene of her getting ready in, in a room with her attendants. She had attendants back then, bridesmaids, and there are women just hovering over my wife, who's 4'11 and a half. And they are making her up and making each hair just be in exactly the right place and making sure that the dress is in just such a way. And I know that my wife and no bride comes to the church to get married and says, ah, what am I going to wear today? They've been planning it since they were two, since they were in the box. They've been working on it. They've been looking at the magazines and watching things on TV. And when they go to other people's weddings, it's not so much about that other couple. But, ooh, do I like the way that looks? They've been planning about it meticulously. The bride gets ready for the groom, and because there's this expectation of what's about to happen. I remember my wife, she had a hat that she wore, and it had this big brim around it. And it had a veil over the brim. And she's standing there looking herself in the mirror. She didn't say it, but I could just tell, thinking, dang, Larry is one lucky boy. I look good. Mm. 
And she says to one of, the, of her attendants while she's looking at the hat and getting it just right, she says, should I cock it? And she cocks the hat, says, yeah, I'm going to cock it. I'm bad now. Don't play with me. The bride is careful to make sure that everything is prepared just right. That there's something about that bride that when I stand up there and see her coming down the aisle, I turn into whatever, jello. Come on now. Uh, I'm going to pray and we're going to leave right now. Glory be to God. Are you expecting? Look at verse 3, our last verse here. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. John uses a different word than he would usually use for sanctification or holiness. It's a different word he uses here for purifies. And it's a word that was taken from Numbers and Exodus where the people of God had to consecrate themselves in a specific way to get ready for an event that the Lord was calling forth. So there's a getting ready, getting purified. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself. You know, John wrote this whole book. There's a purpose statement in it. In chapter 5, verse 14, he says, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know. Not that you may guess, not that you may hope, that you may pray, but that you may know that you have eternal life. Those who came in were telling them, yeah, you're good, you're good. We don't even sin. John says, no, that's not the way it is. If, if you're a child of the king, if you have his DNA, then you're going to look like him. If you have his DNA, then no one's going to need to do a paternity test on you to find out whether you belong to Jesus or not. They're going to look at you and say, tag, that is a believer in Jesus. Look at him go. It's not that we do these things to impress God. We do them because we love God and he's transforming us in every way. So as we close today, I pray for each one of us will grow in our longing to see Jesus. We will know who we are as children of the living God and that we'll live with expectation of his coming, expectation of our transformation into his likeness. You will never live above what your greatest expectation is. You won't. So if your greatest expectation is to make $10 million in life, you may be able to do that. And it all burns up. It's all gone. I want to read one scripture in closing. Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21. John, on the Isle of Patmos, says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Can you imagine? If you've ever stood on the shore and looked out to the ocean, there's just water forever. Some of you have been on cruises. There's water everywhere. You've flown over the ocean. There's water everywhere. The sea is no more. It's gone. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Literally, the tent of God or the tabernacle of God is with man. We could say God's crib is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for this for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give them from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But he also gives a word of warning, verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, As for murderers and sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let's pray. God, grant that we will live with sober expectation with great longing to see you. Oh God, I pray for each one of your children that we would know that we are children of God and that, Lord, our lives would be clear on that. We would live a high-definition, high-resolution Christian life. God, that we would have the unmistakable fingerprints of the life of God all over us. Oh God, we pray that we would live with expectation of what is to come. Decrease our care. Decrease our need for. Decrease our preoccupation with things that matter little. Increase our desire to see Jesus Christ manifested in our lives. Increase our longing for your coming. Increase our desire to love our brothers and sisters in such a way that Christ is shown to this lost and dying world. Father, we pray that as we embark on a new year, that you would move to transform our lives and that Jesus Christ would be glorified in an even more powerful way among us. Have your way and glorify your name, we pray in Jesus' name.